to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, Rhea with you once again. I am so excited because today I am here with my friend, Sam Sperlin. He is at The Ready, and he and his company have have authored one of my favorite new books called Brave New Work. I have literally been recommending this book to everyone I know, every man, woman, and child, and I think it's really, really brilliant. So thank you, Sam, for coming to speak to us about it today. Yeah, of course. I'm very, very happy to be here to talk about it. Tell me a little bit about Brave New Work, the book, and your firm, The Ready. The Ready has been around now for a few years. We're an organizational transformation company. We, we basically help really large organizations rethink their ways of working and operating. And then the book, Brave New Work, was written by our founder, Aaron Dignan, basically kind of codifying what we had been doing for a while at The Ready. And it's, it's our take on the future of work and you know, how organizations organizations could and should change for that future. So the reason I absolutely loved Brave New Work was it it was a different take than all of the other leadership books I've ever read or business books I've ever read, which is I think oftentimes there's this default to saying it's it's about leadership or some other thing, but this is the first book I've read that talked about the operating system and how to upgrade that as a way to work better. So tell us a little bit how do can we understand an operating system as the same as culture? And if not, why not? Yeah, the way we talk about those two things, they're very related. So the Venn diagram of culture and an operating system would be certainly would have some overlap. The way that I think it's useful to think about it though is that an operating system produces culture. And for us, we wanted a more specific way to be able to talk about parts of culture. Culture is often this really amorphous thing that people use the word, but they actually mean really different aspects of it. And if we're going to come into organizations and try to share ideas and and do various interventions to help with our culture, we wanted to be able to point to specific things. So for us, an operating system is really that kind of invisible layer that sits below culture. And then culture is what you end up seeing based on your operating system. So what are some examples of operation, uh, the operating system that the Ready helps to upgrade? Yeah, so we developed a tool we call the OS Canvas, and it's basically just a grid of 12 fields. And in those 12 fields, we have various parts of an organization. And just to back up a second, where that came from early in our existence as a company, we were looking at companies that were doing things differently, and they were experiencing outsized success as compared to their competitors. And we wanted to better understand where, like, what in their organization are they doing differently? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is where we figured out kind of the parts of the operating system. And it's things like compensation and purpose and meetings and information. And within each of these fields, you can have or you do have assumptions that the organization makes about these things, about how we do those things here. You have certain behaviors and methodologies and activities that happen within your your operating system. And our basic premise is that much of the many of the organizations that we all either work in or experience day to day 
are fundamentally running an operating system that's not particularly well suited for the future anymore. So we, we help those organizations understand what that means and then experiment their way into a better operating system that's better suited for the complex kind of crazy world that we live in now. Yeah. I mean, so much of what is in Brave New Work really hit home to me as far as having these outdated operating systems that were based on a world that we no longer live in, that was much more hierarchical, top down. I was actually giggling when I read the example of how to sabotage an organization, which for those of you who have not read it, you're in for a treat. (laughs) Tell me a little bit, some of the tenant or two of the tenants that really come out again and again in the book is being people positive and complexity conscious. What does that mean? Yeah, so those are are just two broad buckets for kind of categorizing the types of things that what we call evolutionary organizations do. So to to kind of put some some meat on those bones, so people-positive assumptions and activities are all about you know, how we treat the people within our organizations. Do we fundamentally believe that people want to do a good job and that even without, without explicit punishment or, or reward, people want to do good work? And if you have an organization that is built around these basic assumptions that people can be trusted, then you can do interesting things around or with autonomy and giving people more space to to use their judgment as opposed to needing to lock down everything within an organization into these kind of bureaucratic, hierarchical, very slow, massive things that we often experience now. So that's kind of on the, on the people positive side of things. And then complexity conscious, that's really about treating the organization as almost like an organism rather than a machine. If you treat a company like a machine, which is a really common metaphor that you hear leaders use sometimes, what what you're doing is basically you're talking about the organization as if it is highly predictable, as if you could could know the cause and effect relationships on like a very one-to-one kind of very tight integration. So the idea being that you know, if you're a leader and you're thinking of your organization as a machine, then you think if you do this thing, then this other thing is you know is going to happen. But if right. you know anything about human beings, you know anything about complex adaptive systems, that's a large jump to make. It's it's just not how organizations function because, and we talk a lot about this in the book, they are complex systems. And mm-hmm. in a complex system, you can't if you treat a complex system like a machine, you're going to be confused and, and frustrated and, and disappointed. So these organizations, these evolutionary orgs, they do things that are complexity conscious. They get that it's not a machine and that you're dealing with a probabilistic system. And, and you know, that shows up in lots, of, in lots of different ways. It's about enabling constraints. It's about, you know, kind of creating guardrails where autonomy can happen in between those guardrails. And it's about letting things emerge and kind of letting go of the picture perfect plan that we follow to a T, you know, looking nine months out, a year out. Mm -hmm. It's just, that's just not the world we live in. So we, we try to help organizations understand that and then make decisions about what they do based on that understanding. So I actually have a question about millennials. So I'm 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 okay. trying not to millennial bash, but I you know I'm friends with lots <laughs> as, of as 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 a resident millennial, I will not a, take offense. As, as a millennial, well, so but let me ask you this because I think a common refrain that you hear from folks who are a bit older 
is that they're having a very hard time figuring out how to manage their millennial workforce. And it seems like the framework that you present in Brave New Work is designed to kind of unleash the potential of folks, be it millennial or Gen X or or what have you. But I'm just wondering, do you see this work as being an antidote to a lot of the complaints about millennials and the ways in which they operate? Maybe, maybe. And I would actually say in my experience, I don't see a lot of generational difference in, in terms of kind of what you're talking about here, because, and I, and I say this as a former teacher and kind of really being familiar with what our educational system is like, mm-hmm. our educational system for most folks, unless you went to kind of a progressive, maybe private school or charter school, our, the American public school system is all about preparing people for this world of very hierarchical, very command and control, very mechanistic organizations. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of millennials who are coming out of school expecting that and, and, you know, being comfortable with the idea that they're going to be, you know, have someone to tell them what to do. So, you know, when we go in with our, or with our clients, I, I don't, I very rarely have like the millennial group of, of people within the organization who like totally get it. And then everybody else, like everybody's kind of swimming in this together. That being said, you know, I think some of the, some of the stereotypes about millennials, you know, wanting freedom to, to maybe do work a little bit differently or not have to be in the office at a specific time. Like those sorts of things align with a, and a philosophy of people positivity and trust and autonomy. Yes. So to that extent, you know, there's, there's something there. But it's not it's not as clear cut as maybe it would seem. It's so interesting that you say that because as I was reading the book, so much of it was ringing true for me. So I was the executive director of a nonprofit for about twelve years, and at one point I was like on the holacracy train. I was like, we're, we're going to go like totally oh, open yeah. you guys and like, you know, <laughs> well, it was like like totally optional, like come in to work, but you know, you can work from home. We're outcomes oriented. I don't care about the number of hours at the right. desk. And it actually ended up totally backfiring on me. Sure. In part because I think it was, I didn't build enough consensus around me, even though I was the executive director. And then the other part is, sure. is and I realized that like, I didn't build in transparency before freedom. And so mm. it was this weird thing of like, oh, she says I can do this, but do I actually get to do this? And actually it made people kind of err on the side of like being more freaked out. It was, it yeah, was well, that's a psychological a, experiment, I think. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. We talk a lot about when we do organizational change, you know, we don't have a, a very prescribed rule book about the specific order of operations that we do things. But there are a few things within our approach that do require some careful thought about what order you do things. So for example, just to kind of emphasize what you just said, we'll often talk about, you know, what would it be, what would it mean like to, to give teams more autonomy? And so an organization could theoretically give teams a lot more autonomy, let them make their own decisions, but still treat information like this cherished resource or or something that you hold close to the chest. Mm -hmm. So you now have teams who have the authority to make decisions, but they don't have very good information to make those decisions. So now you just have teams running around making decisions with really bad information. So you actually got to do it the other way around. You got to you got to spend some time opening up information and making sure everybody has the latest and best information to then go make decisions with that autonomy that they are granted. Gosh, I have so many questions, but so it seems like, you know, everyone is so busy these days, right? Like we're busier than we've ever been between being online 24-7, emails and so forth, but we're less productive than ever. So do you think that the approach 
in Brave New Work is is a cure for this problem that we all face? I think it's it certainly could potentially help. I don't know if I if it's going to be a, a, a full on cure, but we talk about in the book because our our clients are you know corporate executives, and if you take a look at their calendar, it'll it'll take your breath away. You know, triple booked in meetings all day long for weeks at a time, and we talk a lot about starting by stopping is the phrase we use. So what what can we stop doing in order to free up a little bit of blank space where we can think and try things differently and and actually just have a little bit of room to breathe. So we'll do things we'll we'll ask our clients to to do things like hey for a week just cancel all your meetings. Just like or not even cancel, just like don't go and see what'll happen. Very rarely is there something that is so crucial that you're, you know, it's the end of the end of the road if you don't go. I mean, it helps too that often we're talking with pretty senior leaders who, you know, they, they can have the kind of career cachet that they don't have to worry about that. But so cancel everything for a week and then only add the things back in that you actually felt like you missed, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and not and maybe you can shed a lot of the stuff that you just feel like you have to go because that's what you've always done and you have some inertia around that. So there's certainly something about, about starting by stopping things. And the other thing is, you know, I love this book, Essentialism. And we spend a lot of time working with our clients about trying to figure out like, what is the actual essential thing for us to be doing right now? And the essential thing and just being busy are two very, very different things. And there's I think there's a lot of things going on in corporate, in just any organization where there's a lot of pride in being seen as busy. And it's, it's frankly, it's easier to be, to be in back-to-back-to-back meetings all day long than it is to have an hour of completely unstructured time and have to make a decision about the best thing that you could be doing right now. Mm-hmm. That, is a, that can be an uncomfortable place to be in. So I think there's, there's a... There's a weird relationship that I think a lot of folks have with this really busy culture where just talking out of the one side of their mouth, they hate it, but on the other side, like they kind of also need it. And that's yeah. what makes it so hard. And that's why it's still around. And that's why it's not as simple as just saying like, hey, do this one thing. Yeah, um, it's, it's much more psychologically complex than that. So you bring up a good point, which I think, you know, as leaders, we... You know, we're always looking, especially in the nonprofit world, where we're so resource constrained. Like we're always looking for mm-hmm. that magic bullet. And I know that when you in the book you said that when senior leaders come in and they want like a plan for like this is what change management is going to look like, and like when when do we arrive at this place? And it seems like it's a much more yeah. organic process, and that no two organizations have the same process. Is that right? Yeah, that and also there is no end point, which is something we talk about early on. Like there is no there is no kind of holy land at the end that we're leading them to. Like what we are actually trying to do in the time that we are working with our clients is to get a process started to kind of kickstart a mechanism of, of we call the change loop of noticing challenges or tensions in your operating system, having an array of possible things that you could try and then picking one and running an experiment on it. Just getting that process happening at you know the individual level and the team level and the team of teams level, that's what we're trying to do because that's what allows organizations to constantly change themselves over time and not you know not just some some other static point in the future mm-hmm. so that's that's part of it what was what was your original question? I'm sorry, it sparked for me just talking about about that like leaders who want kind of a prescriptive 
journey yeah. or prescriptive plan of like, okay, well, like when do we get from here totally. to here? Like I need yep, a, yep, a yep. roadmap. Yeah, exactly. And and actually one of the things that leaders also tend to really love to do is talk about change and intellectualize about change because leaders tend to be pretty smart people and it can be fun to talk about, you know, what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and make that plan. And as quickly as possible, we try to get leaders into the actual work itself and actually experiencing change. So rather than talking about how we could do meetings differently, why don't you let us facilitate your meetings for the next week and just start experiencing what it's like to be in a, in a different type of meeting or you know, talking about doing something differently. Let's find something small that we can actually do and just get into it. That is always so much more successful than spending a long time making that, that picture perfect plan that you know, immediately gets thrown out the window when things start changing. Can we talk about leaders for a second? Because sure. I I have been a founder myself. I have lots of clients and friends who are founders and like, bless mm-hmm. our hearts. We are both <laughs> like are a blessing and our own worst enemy. And so I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, when you think about the work of changing the culture and the operating system of an organization, how important is leadership? Because I, I know that a a lot of times these legacy systems are born out of the personality of a leader. Yeah, that's such a that's such a juicy question. So my my initial thought on on this when I think about the the organizations that we come into, obviously we're being hired by some leader who has found the ready and wants to do something a little bit different. I mean, we're obviously not a typical consulting firm. So some leader has found us and engaged us and, and wants to come in and do some change. So they tend to already be kind of, they tend to be a little bit more enlightened maybe than a typical leader. They maybe have already read Brave New Work. It resonated with them. Like that is like a certain filter that, that these folks have already gone through. Once we come into an organization though, there's a lot that we can do without necessarily having super tight leadership buy-in. Our, our whole thing is about, you know, Change needs to happen throughout the organization. It can't just be rolled down from, from the top. So while having leadership support, and obviously we need that to even get in in the first place, is nice. When we come into an organization, we try, we try to get that as close to the bottom and as close to the edge as possible, as quickly as possible, because that's where a change effort is going to live or die. Then over time, once you've built up some success, you've built up some proof of, of concept, you do get to a point where where people start wondering and looking to the leaders to see whether or not this is going to be something that's real, whether, whether they should let their hopes get up, whether they should invest emotionally in the types of change that we've been doing together, or is this going to be you know, just a flavor of the week, flavor of the month type thing, and the leaders are going to take it away. And then that, at that point in a project, that's where if we haven't had super tight leadership buy-in, it's a pretty important, it's an important part of the project where we have to get that at that point or else it's going to kind of unravel. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideally, you know, you don't necessarily have to do that in this really intense moment, you know, a few months into the project, you've been building up to it over time, but leaders have to do the work just like anyone else. You know, they have to, they have to wrestle with what it means to show up differently. They have to yeah. wrestle with what it means to give up power and, and push power and authority down into teams. And some leaders are really jazzed by that and are energized by it. And others are kind of scared out of their mind about what does it mean for me in this organization if this this power that I've had for a long time is no longer part of my role. What do I do? Like, what value do I have around here? 
And there's a, I have lots of great answers for that, but you know, it's also kind of like a, a personal wrestling that you have to do with that, that question. Yeah. yeah. It's such an interesting point because we, we talk to leaders a lot on this podcast and a, a mm-hmm. sort of common theme is the internal work of leadership, right? It's not about marching around and telling people what to do, but in fact, it's about developing your own self-awareness and sense of humility and yeah. uh, harnessing your own ego about you know, what to do or what not to do, or the fact that you're going to get tomatoes thrown at you, no matter what you do. <laughs> totally. Well, and, and operating in a world where you kind of have a legacy operating system, there is a certain comfort to that because part of having that worldview is that you think you have control over things. And the illusion of control can still feel pretty good. It can feel safe if you don't let yourself really think too much about the illusion aspect of it. So when you're moving into a world where you acknowledge that your organization that you lead is a complex adaptive system, which means you have, you know, a minor amount of control over how things how things go, that's a lot that's a much more ambiguous place and a lot a much more uncomfortable place for leaders. Have I mean, I don't want you to tell tales out of school, but have you ever had a situation where it was clear that the leader wasn't going to move in a different way and that your work was sort of at a standstill? Yeah, that's that certainly has, has happened without going into to too much detail. I mean, the nice thing with really large organizations is that there's very rarely a leadership bottleneck. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you get to a certain point and there, you have the CEO essentially who's, who's at the very top, but in, you know, in a hundred thousand person company, there's other, there's other leaders and other types of leadership that you can go to if you're hitting kind of a roadblock with, with someone with, again, I'm speaking very generally because I kind of have to, um, but I mean, the other thing too, is that we talk about trying to, we call it like joining the resistance. So basically if somebody is not, instead of kind of working around the people who are resistant to the change or, or particularly cynical or skeptical, we try to get really close to them and really treat those people as, as sensors in the organization that are telling us something. Uh, and I would, I would hope that in, in our projects, if we're noticing that a leader is just like not buying in, that's actually a sign for us to spend more time with that leader and really try to, to understand that. Because I think in a lot of, in a lot of cases, not a hundred percent, but in a lot, they're actually, they kind of have their finger on something important that we need to understand in order for the, the transformation to keep going. And, and often those people end up being the biggest champions for the work once you're able to work through that, that point, if you can. So yeah, yeah leaders, leaders are, are, I mean, I personally love working with leaders and it's such a, we have an interesting relationship with it because so much of our work is about self-management and pushing yeah. authority and autonomy out to the teams, which can be interpreted as anti-leader, which I don't think we we are at all. So, Yeah, I actually recently saw an interview with Jeff Bezos who said that he made three high-quality decisions a day. And I was like, like my mind was blown because I felt like <laughs> when I was leading, I made like a bajillion micro decisions every day and it was exhausting to the point that when I got home, I couldn't even decide what to make for dinner because I was like, I've been making decisions all day. Totally. Totally. That's such an interesting reframe. I like that a lot. Yeah. It gets back to the essentialism idea too. Exactly. Make three high quality decisions. I was like, I never got there, but I aspire to it. So to switch tasks a little bit, you talked about 
tensions. And, and for those of you listening, I, there are cards that the ready produces, which I have bought. So there are common tensions and common solutions. Practices. Uh, common practices. Thank you. Yep. Obviously, I have spent more time with the tension cards. <laughs> are there some common, like, what are the most common tensions that you see across all of the clients that you work with? Because I, I was literally going through the tension cards. I was like, yep, yep, yep. Like, oh, were you sitting at Yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, that's <laughs> meetings. We have meetings about meetings. Like, we're siloed, like all of the things. Are there yeah. like some top five common tensions? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you, you hit on a couple of them right there. I mean, every client I've ever done work with has had gripes about meetings. They've had gripes about email. They've had gripes about silos. Those are probably like maybe the three most common ones that seem to be true no matter the size of the organization, no matter the industry. Those, those three tensions are always kind of top of, top of mind for folks. I'm trying to think what else, depending on the organization, especially really large ones, people can sometimes, there's, there's some tensions around not knowing how your work like fits into the larger vision mm. um, or kind of fits into the purpose. That is one that is more common among our corporate clients and as you could probably guess, much less common among kind of like nonprofits and, mm-hmm. and um, social enterprises. But yeah, I mean the the other just kind of glib answer is like those cards, those are the those are the most common ones. Those are like the, seventy-five those 70 are orders. the most common. Exactly. Well, and it's funny, you kind of made one of my points in the sense that, you know, you were flipping through those cards and they they resonated for you, and I sit down with a client at a hundred thousand person or you know multinational organization, and they resonate for them. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just one of the most fascinating things about this work is that it's not a industry problem. It's not even a size problem. It's a humans coming together to try to do stuff together problem. Right. And that's what like unites all of these organizations. And that's at the end of the day that what where the tensions arise from. So last question as we're wrapping up, you know, here on Nonprofit Lowdown, I try to give folks some actionable things that they can do. And so what are some actionable things that leaders or folks listening to the podcast can do if they're like, Sam, sounds awesome, totally all in, going to get the book. We'll make sure to put all the info in the show notes. But like, what are some things that folks can do right now? I would say if you lead a team or you're part of a team, pull your team together for 90 minutes and do attention mapping exercise. You don't need the cards necessarily. Just have a stack of post-its and ask people to write down kind of retrospecting on the last three months or so, you know, where, what are the challenges that you're facing? What are the friction points that you're facing in your work right now? Have everybody generate as many as they can on separate post-it notes, throw them on a wall, put like with like and see what emerges from as, as themes. Have a conversation about that and see if you can, as a group, come up with a potential experiment to help that tension go away and put some, put some meat on the bones of that, of that experiment and kind of figure out how long you're going to do it for and what you're going to, what would give you some indication that it has been successful and then commit to it as, as a team. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the process we're teaching organizations. That fundamentally, what I just described is looking at your operating system and making deliberate choices about how to change it. That is, I think, one of the best things that anybody could do, especially if you if you lead a team. So much of the trust in a team is built through like psychological safety. I mean, yeah. we have so much coming out about that. And what if you don't have that psychological safety and trust on a team to be able to have that conversation in a real way? 
how do you establish that before you have the question about tension? Sure, sure. So, I mean, if you're the leader of the team and you feel like there's not the psychological safety to have a session like that, that should be holding a mirror up to you in a pretty major way. If, 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 the, if the team is so unsafe that we can't have a conversation about how we could potentially work better, mm-hmm. that is particularly problematic. And that's and that right there is the, the nature of you, whatever your first experiment has to be around mm-hmm. kind of making that climate on your team better. And, you know, there's lots of great writing out there about about that, you know, Amy Emmonson's writing and, and lots of other stuff kind of coming out of Google and other places about how to start increasing psychological safety. And, and, and from a leader perspective, it starts with vulnerability on your on your part. You know, what can you do to make yourself a little bit vulnerable in front of your team and start demonstrating that that safety? You know, that's that's a whole nother can of worms, but that's where I would start if if someone came to me and, and said like we couldn't even do this exercise. Right. And at what point would you recommend bringing in an outside facilitator? Because I think sometimes if the leader has blind spots or maybe if the leader is the problem or is the creator, <laughs> it, it can be helpful. But like, what are the indicators that it would be time to bring in a facilitator as opposed to a DIY job? Sure. I mean, I think... I think it's really interesting to bring in an external facilitator whenever possible. And when I mean external, I just mean external to this specific team. It could still be somebody else in your organization. And I, I do think there, it is really valuable to have somebody in the room who is purely thinking about the structure and flow of the meeting and are completely uninvested in the specifics of what is actually being discussed. And we often play that role. I mean, I don't know how many meetings I'm in every day where I know absolutely nothing about the specifics that are being discussed, but I'm not there to know that. I'm there to be facilitating. So, I mean, I think an easy way is see if you can just find someone else who's not on the team to facilitate, see if they're willing to do it, especially if you have anybody in the organization who has some facilitation training, some facilitation chops. I think that is that is helpful. And if you have, yeah, I mean, if you have some some budget or some connections with some outside facilitators, I think it's a really interesting thing to, to have someone come in and, and do that. So if that is doable for you, I'd say do it whenever whenever you can. Awesome. Well, I'm all out of questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to add as we sign off? No, no. I feel like I could I could talk to you for hours about the book. So maybe maybe we'll just do this again sometime in the future. Would, I'll have you on on my podcast or something. I would love to be on your podcast. <laughs> I'd love to do this again. I mean as I as I say this has been an obsession for the lot really since it came out. And, and so right now I'm in the process of trying to convince people to let me facilitate something for free just because I want to test out the cards. Yeah. But oddly, no one's yeah. taking me up on it, which is so weird. I'm like, free labor, yeah. you guys. Well, <laughs> curious about what is it about the book that resonated so deeply with you? What, yeah. what made you so excited about it? Partially because I, I really got very interested in holacracy pretty early on. And I read, I read, the what the re- Robertson's book, organization. Yeah. Oh, reinventing works. Yep, yep, yeah. Blue. And and like I I got very interested in Zappos and so forth. And so yeah. really, what it was is I realized that I am completely let's say untrainable in some ways. Like I I don't do very well with a boss. <laughs> sure. And I sort of by extension was like, well, if I feel that way, I'm sure other people feel that way. And and really, what it was is I came out of an educational nonprofit, and I could see the ways in which a super compliant like super strict charter school, no excuses model really stripped people of what I thought were their humanity and their mm. ability to think for themselves. Like I remember I had 
a couple of students who came out of a no excuses charter school and we were in after school and summer program and like they literally didn't know where to stand or put their hands because we didn't like explicitly tell them that like you must stand on this line and i was like this is not the way that we train people right like if we're trying to train like thinking critical critically thinking citizens then like we need to give them the freedom to operate and to think and so Partially it was my observations about education and partially it was my own orneriness. <laughs> but <laughs> partially it was like I was the head of this organization, but I really felt like what right did I have to like make people do stuff, right? Like I, I didn't <laughs> right, want that responsibility. Right. And I yeah. really I really believe that I hired smart people and I just wanted to like get out of their way and let let them get on with it. And mm-hmm. like the I don't know, the the process of like management and one-on-ones and performance reviews and all that, that I just, it like didn't jive with me. Like that's not how Uh I like to operate. And so I was really looking for a different way to organize people. And it was really interesting because I, I met a ton of resistance amongst the people that I felt should have been most bought in. I was like, no, but I want to give you more freedom. <laughs> like I want, I, yeah. I don't want to tell you what time to come in. Like I, if you need to like be on vacation, be on vacation. I don't care. Unlimited vacation. But I think, again, I think I didn't put enough, the right structures in place. So it, it ended up being like sort of chaotic in the sense that like people, like some people took advantage of it and like weren't really like exercising it in the spirit in which it was meant to be. They would like, Mm -hmm. they would like literally just like never come into the office. Right. Like not get their work done. And I was like, wait, but that's like not what I meant. Right. Right. So, so to answer your question, I think it was, it was sort of indicative of my own, my own untrainability. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's really, that's really interesting. I I came to this work also through holacracy at first. That was my first introduction to this world of new ways of thinking about organizations. So we have that in, in common. And what, to what extent was your experience as a teacher playing into the ways that you're thinking about work now? Other than my, so my teaching career was very brief. I don't want to overstate that. I basically had a two-year like, long-term substitute teaching career coming out of undergrad. I graduated at a very unfortunate time to be trying to find a full-time teaching job in the Detroit area, which was 2009. But so... What the main thing I think I took away from that experience was how it broken organizations are almost never a people problem. Mm. How there are forces at play that are system level that are creating the things that I'm experiencing in a negative way as a member of this system. Mm -hmm. And addressing it as just a people problem is not how you're going to actually solve that. So I think at the time, I didn't have that vocabulary for it. I just was frustrated and didn't want to be a teacher anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but through my time at in, in grad school and then the kind of self re- the research that I was doing that led me to self-management and holacracy, that's kind of what I think what was bouncing around in my head during all that. And now very, I can see that very clearly now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing that I really resonated with me when I read the book was you know, so often as a leader, I, I felt like I failed, like I made mistakes and I failed. And like when things <laughs> yeah. weren't working, I, I took it very personally. Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, how can I be better? And it was just actually right. like very validating to be like, actually, maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it was the system. Maybe it was like stuff that was beyond my direct control or stuff that I wasn't directly responsible for. Right. Well, and even, and even those failures, you know, could potentially, and this is me, I'm, I'm speaking as a very 
self-critical person. So yeah. what you are saying echoes with me. But one thing that I have tried to help clients a lot with is things that we are perceiving as failures in this moment are actually providing us really valuable data about what's working and what's not working. So yes, oh, we can yeah. experience it emotionally as a failure, but an experiment you know, is, is not only successful if we get the result that we were hoping for. We get, if we get any result and we kind of figure out what that means, that's valuable and that it can, we can use that to be better in the future. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Actually, so as I was thinking about it too, the other thing that really, that really drew me to this book and sort of this way of thinking was, you know, I was a first time leader. I was a first time executive director. I was an executive director at 26 years old, right? So like, what did I know about anything? <laughs> and like, as I built an organization, like my organization never got huge. We served like 550 kids. And I, at the height, I had maybe 17 full-time staff members. That's, that's, that's still, that's still enough to like have some serious complexity. Oh, please. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. High school and college kids and like a rotating workforce of college and high school interns. But but so I actually designed the systems around the things that I saw because it was like, oh, well, you know, I'd look at like Teach for America and be like, well, they're successful. So I'll just implement the systems that they've implemented because obviously it works, right? Like I read the McKinsey stuff and I was like, well, I guess yeah. I'll do that because uh, that seems like they know what they're doing. And it just actually made people feel worse. And I was like, wait a second here. Like my A plus B is not equaling C. And so there's obviously something wrong with the way that we're doing things. Well, yeah, that's, that's so, that's so common because all you can really see is the end result of what these other organizations have done. And that's the thing that people try to emulate, but what is allowing that to actually work in another organization is the process that they went through to get to that point. Right. Uh, it's like the, the journey is actually where they built the system and they just happen to end at this, this end point. And then we try to copy the end point without having the journey. We're like, why isn't this working? Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> such a great point. And one, the other piece is like, I had a lot of people on my board who came out of corporate. Right. And so, you know, yeah. were my advisors and they said I needed to do certain things about like totally. performance management. And I was like, okay, like I'm 26 years old. I don't know what to do. Sure. Right. You right. Like, you know what to do. But again, I think, it wasn't getting the result I really wanted. And at the end of the day, what I really wanted was for people to come to work, feel like they were part of something bigger than themselves, that they had some deeper purpose and that they really enjoyed each other and the work. And, and the more I got entrenched in these sort of traditional ideas of how we manage people, the more unhappy people were. And it just seemed right. to be the wrong path. So... Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you found your way to the book and, and this conversation. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Same here. Thank you so much for your time. And let's do this again sometime. Of course. Let's do it. All right. Sounds good. Thanks so much. All right. Yep. Have a good one. Bye. Yep. Bye.